turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. It's Morgan. Thanks for tuning in. If you haven't yet, hit subscribe. Um, Today we are covering two topic requests that I see quite often. One on conservative movement events. So the good, the bad, the improvements that we could make. And the next, an important question on maturity and breaking generational curses. But before we get into those two topics, I have a reading from You Learn by Living by Eleanor Roosevelt that I want to read you guys. Caught my attention. And I want to give a little thought into infighting in the conservative movement. All right, let's begin. But of course, just when he thought it couldn't get any better, Mike Lindell with MyPillow is launching the MyPillow 2.0. When Mike invented MyPillow, it had everything you could ever want in a pillow. Nearly 20 years later, he discovered a new technology that makes it even better. The MyPillow 2.0 has the patented adjustable fill of the original MyPillow and now with a brand new fabric that is made with a temperature-regulating thread. The MyPillow 2.0 is the softest, smoothest, coolest pillow you'll ever own. For my exclusive listeners, the MyPillow 2.0 is buy one get one free with promo code MORGAN. MyPillow 2.0 temperature regulating technology is 100% made in the USA and comes with a 10-year warranty, 60-day money-back guarantee. Go to MyPillow.com, use promo code MORGAN. That's MyPillow.com, promo code MORGAN. Thank you very much. All right, so before we begin, I want to talk about a little segment from You Learn by Living by Eleanor Roosevelt. Let's see. She says, I think a child is particularly fortunate if he grows up in a family where imagination can be fed, where there are a variety of intellectual interests, where someone loves music or does amateur painting or is engrossed in literature, reading aloud perhaps, or just exchanging comments about what is being read. I think it is a tremendous loss to a child to grow up in a family without conversation. Naturally, there are always trivial things, plans, and details to be talked over. But there should be general discussion of ideas as well, of the fantastic things that are happening all over the world, of new discoveries in science and archaeology, of local or distant problems and their possible solution, of anything that keeps before the child the realization that life is an exciting business, that it is to be approached in a spirit of adventure. I was always glad that my husband loved to have the boys argue with him. And by husband, she means FDR. Often he demolished them in one statement, but the heated discussion was stimulating to them all. To this day, the boys continue to argue with each other, finding a mutual stimulus in the exchange of ideas and opinions. Good talk, indeed, is important not only as a part of family life, but as a part of education. A child from that kind of family life can go out into school or his business or profession much better prepared to both contribute and to absorb new impressions. This kind of education provides a constant sharpening of the child's awareness of his world, a constant challenge to develop and express his opinions, a constant intensification of zest for experience. Along with the stimulus of good talk, of the education that comes almost unconsciously from casual discussion of books read, from a gradual knowledge of music heard as part of daily life, there is also the great value of surrounding a child with objects of beauty, which, almost imperceptibly, help to form taste. These don't have to be original paintings by the old masters of great rarity and value. There are copies that cost only a few pennies. I've often thought as I walk down the river towards 
some fancy French building that I can't pronounce and watched the children playing that the thing we call French culture may be due to the fact that French children can play surrounded by the things of the past, palaces of bygone kings, statues, remembrances of history. These became part of the child's background because he played ball surrounded by them. Later, he will know who Napoleon and Jean d'Arc were. When he grows up, he will have absorbed unconsciously the impact and meaning of his surroundings. This is what makes a nation's culture. The kind of things with which you surround a child will sink into his consciousness. So I thought this was interesting for two reasons. I mean, number one, we could go with the obvious fact that teaching history is not exactly a precious thing anymore in America. We're taught to be ashamed of our history, which which makes it kind of hard for kids to grow up and want to defend our nation and what we stand on because they're taught that it's not exactly stuff to be proud of. So that's a kind of a big concern. But something else, the first part of it that I read that had to do with creating an environment where children are constantly stimulated with ideas and discussion, not necessarily just like in an American public school where they're taught to memorize information. I think that has such an important, important aspect to it if you're looking into how you can educate your child at home or if your child goes to public school and you want to just expand their horizons. They say a lot that like if you're teaching somebody something, if you're explaining something to somebody, even if you don't really understand it all, it actually helps you learn the subject. Like you you do a better job of learning to understand a subject the more you explain it to other people. And when you're able to have discussions from the heart off the top of your brain about a topic and ask questions, ask other people what they know about it, take in information, digest it, ask how does this impact me? How does this impact my family? How does this impact the local people around me, our local community, our region, and then how does it affect our country versus our world? That makes learning a lot more fun. You know what I mean? Like I used to never be a science person when I was in school, like taking the class chemistry was not my cup of tea, I guess you could say. But as somebody that does love learning about history, human relations, social sciences, social studies, I guess you could say, uh, all these different things, I actually became quite passionate about chemistry and science in general because it relates because you see experts in science these days manipulating public policy, controlling an entire nation with claims of an emergency health crisis. And of course, on top of that, you see the government working in coordination with big pharma and corrupt companies and corrupt bureaucrats all coordinating coordinating together, right? to approve chemicals and ingredients in food that we really shouldn't be consuming. And it's important to understand why these certain things are actually bad for us. When the government says the food pyramid is good, when the government says XYZ is okay for us, like oxybenzone and sunscreen, we need to understand as consumers, as American citizens, why it's actually wrong, why we shouldn't be doing certain things and consuming certain products, and then why the heck would our government allow this? Uh, So it all actually connects. And so when you I know that like a young kid isn't going to want to comprehend this stuff right away, but I see it as like when you're in middle school turning into high school, I think science and public policy and teaching government, teaching civics, these are larger lessons where you can connect the dots for kids and older students on why these things are important to learn in the first place. Because when you're going through public school and you're going from subject to subject each class and you like, you know, the bell rings and you have four minutes to get to your next class and then you open that chemistry notebook and you close the social studies notebook because you don't need that anymore. It's like, wait a second, this all actually connects a lot more and it makes it more fun to discuss. And so I have this little vision right now 
and maybe there's other homeschools that already do this, like more structured. But in my head, it's like, okay, how would I then, if say I'm forming a homeschool for just my kids or for the community homeschool pod, how can I make it more focused on discussion and connecting all the dots? And I see it as like having this big table where we're all sitting, maybe snacking, and we have like a topic of the day and we warn everybody of like, okay, tomorrow's topic is going to be X, Y, Z. So like bring your thoughts, bring your questions, and we're going to have a discussion. Like you have to pick a side and then we'll all just discuss it. And then, hey, if you change your mind, you change your mind. But you need to be asking the questions of what is the bigger meaning of all these and pieces of information. So I just think something like that, like a discussion session would be so fun and actually quite educational. Okay. Not just for fun, but educational and then they take away from that the greater experience of being able to ask questions speak to a crowd or speak to a room of people because right now i would say that students don't really learn that skill at all and most people have a hard time even answering the phone uh, <laughs> which is a totally different topic but i think the more we encourage people to communicate ask questions respect each other and be willing to hear other opinions and stuff like that all at a discussion and make it exciting I don't know. I just had this little daydream about it. So I'm excited to maybe implement that one day. Now, on to a less fun topic. Uh, let's just say Morgan's not interested in politics or talking about politics right now, but something came up that caught my attention. And it has to do with whatever mess is going on where people are upset with Ron DeSantis or Trump, vice versa. Geez, we are, as a movement, conservative movement, quite quick to jump on someone and stab them in the back, and then move on to the next one. The left is really good at doing something called circling the wagons whenever one of their members is weak, right? Like, they want a strong front. They may disagree on quite a lot. But at the end of the day, they circle the wagons when a problem is occurring because they understand that the fight against the right or against people in general that are ideologically different from them, that matters more than tiny little infighting that could cause weakness, illness on their side, and lead to bigger problems down the road where they can't have their big wins. Whereas conservatives, we become this greedy, money-seeking group of paid people, consultants, influencers that just think it's all a fun game, I guess, <laughs> and think that everybody's just dispensable. You know, DeSantis upset us one time, so we're going to throw him in the trash and we'll just wait for our next one to come until we really like him. You know, screw him. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, but that's how this all came across. And all it made me think is like, wow, we certainly love to taste blood. And it's kind of disgusting. And I don't mean like the taste of blood is disgusting. I mean, it's disgusting and embarrassing how much we cheer for the downfall of people on our own side. And no, I'm not saying like truly flawed people that don't deserve to be you know, public figures on our own side. I think they had it coming for them. But if somebody does something that we maybe disagree with, that we maybe don't understand, or maybe a statement came out and we don't, we don't really like it, we would rather taste blood and watch the downfall of that person forever and remove them from our side. And just not even give them a fighting chance ever again. They're done in our eyes, I guess. Because we feed off the drama. And a lot of the people that are commentating, a lot of the people that have accounts, a lot of people that have big followers, they have no core purpose for saving the republic. You know what I mean? Like their, their goal is to make content, to stay in the know, to be one of the hype people that's at the beginning, the forefront, who can say, I told you so. 
and it's nothing but embarrassing. Now, I should say, if somebody does something wrong and it's disagreeable, then yeah, disagree with them and work to find a solution. But don't draw blood just because you love the drama of it and you love the show of it all. It is pathetic. Is the Republic really at stake if we're able to act in such a way with our own side? I mean, wow. DeSantis, for example, put out a statement. Some people liked it. Some people did not. How quickly the people that are saying he's done in my eyes, how quickly were they able to just look past all of his good abilities that bring positive impacts to our side compared to the rest of the nasty rhinos that are out there that have continued to screw us over for a very long time? DeSantis runs a state that doesn't even have an income tax, but his students have better test scores, better educational scores than New York State that pays many times more per student than the state of Florida does with no income tax. And in New York, you're paying a hefty amount, thousands of dollars in taxes. A chunk of your annual income goes to New York State taxes if you live there. It's a terrible place to live. And they spend more per pupil than pretty much any other state, I think other than California, in the country. But Florida has higher test scores than them because they know how to spend money and they're governed well. Okay, and no, he wasn't the first governor to achieve this. But Florida is a well-run state and DeSantis has done a wonderful job. You don't just look past something like that, especially when Republicans for 30 years in Washington, D.C. have been completely screwing over our side, embracing taxes, embracing corporate America, going against everything that our side claims to be in favor of. You know, we're against big government. Guess who's in favor of big government? All the Republicans in D.C. So you can look at decisions in the past, legislation in the past, and say, you know, this person's done in my eyes. But maybe we should bring more grace to the situation and understand there is something called nuance and context and the ability to look at the bigger picture here and understand that no one's going to align with us 100% and just say, gee, maybe they're not so bad after all. Maybe not everybody is a bought-out Soros bot that's secretly funded by the DC establishment. You really never know. But I, I truly saw some people that saw George Soros our number one enemy, right? On the left, the big funder of all the leftist DAs, everything. He said DeSantis would be a good idea. And people actually fell for that. You're telling me the number one guy of our opponents, the number one funder of the American left, says that he supports Ron DeSantis? And the right actually fell for that and said, well, then we can't support Ron DeSantis because George Soros supports him. Uh, you guys, don't you think that he would probably just say that to rile us up and then whoever did get riled up fell for it very hard and that's kind of embarrassing? That's what happened there, okay? I say all this because, I mean, the state of Florida is a great representation of what we would like to achieve. DeSantis has done a great job running that state, keeping a balanced budget in a state with no income tax, funding everything that needs to be funded, handling emergencies in the state as they have come. On top of that, he uses legislation to fight the culture wars that most Republicans are scared to even encounter. And he does it with policy. He does it with actual action instead of just posting about it online or saying that they're going to do it like most of the Republicans say. So I'm not picking a side here. I'm just saying maybe don't throw him in the trash just because you're upset about one statement. That's all I've got to say on that. Now, the next thing. Here's a way you can bring discernment to the situation whenever you see drama like this. 
if you see really nasty stuff being posted about somebody that really hasn't done anything to deserve that kind of statement against him, probably look at the account and just do a few Google searches, see if they maybe have a consulting LLC and see where they get their payments from. Or it's pretty easy to assume most of the time if you see pages that are larger, it's safe to assume that they get money and they could often get money from a campaign or from a pack that encourages them to post certain things about a certain candidate. And you could say, wow, okay, so they're paid to have that, that very harsh, aggressive statement. And if they hadn't been paid, the statement probably wouldn't have been made. But because there's a lot of money going around, now we're seeing all these very harsh anti-fill-in-the-blank of this candidate's name tweets. And everybody's kind of picking up on it because all of a sudden there's a new online trend. And so everybody that's a sheeple, even in the conservative movement, decides, you know what, I should hop on this trend because it looks like it's a trend and I need to stay relevant. And so all of a sudden, I'm going to become anti this candidate and I'm going to start retweeting and posting and saying the same things. So there's a difference. You were either, you know, paid very well to have this opinion and you kind of get the ball rolling, make it a trend to discuss this stuff. Or you're going to be one of the people that doesn't make any money from it and you just see it happening and you're like, I need to tag along to this. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, next thing you know, the ball is rolling, the topic is there, it's trending on social, and we got a problem. And once again, the conservative movement has killed another person with great potential. And now I say all that knowing, you know what, people are going to be like, but Morgan, XYZ, he did this, he did that. Listen, if he did wrong, just consider the fact that we have some bigger problems, have some grace, don't tear down the number two just because you really want the number one to win again. Don't tear him down because he's still number two. So just don't rip down the entire foundation of potential leaders that we have just to make a point, just to really make sure number one gets back in. Okay, you get me? Like there, there's room for both sides to still be present and leading in the movement. It doesn't have to be just one. And if we just have one, then we're going to have a problem in four more years. You know what I mean? You get me? Okay. Ah. <sighs> What a mess. Um, now, speaking of the conservative movement, I get a lot of questions about conservative events, big conservative events, what ones are good, what ones are bad, or like how could they improve, stuff like that. And I just want to say I've been to quite a lot, right? I, <laughs> I've been to a lot over the years. When I first got involved, like right away, I was started to get invited all of a sudden. Like, I don't know, I wasn't cool at all or anything, but because I was doing the nonprofit stuff, I was just getting these event invites and free tickets or even like, offers to pay for my travel and everything and it was such an honor like I really appreciate it because usually for these events you have to save up pay for the ticket pay for the flight pay for the hotel everything like it's a big deal and people go on like a vacation almost and include this conference or event as a part of that vacation or trip and time off and so for me I almost like grew this event privilege in a way because I was getting to go for free and then eventually I was starting to get paid to go and speak at these things and I would have everything covered for me. So I've been to a lot of them. I have event privilege. I don't want to take it for granted, but I definitely, you know, I'm just not in the mood to really go to many anymore because I'm not in the mood to travel and I don't really want that kind of lifestyle anymore. But I did appreciate those experiences and getting to go all over and see everything. And because I was able to see a lot of these things, I was able to see a bunch of different kinds of events, I guess you could say. And so I have my thoughts and I don't want you guys to be like, dang, she is negative about this stuff. 
that's not what I mean. Because on one hand, it's like, listen, at the end of the day, it's a super fun event. People go, they want to watch speakers that they love. They want to learn some things. They want to meet people that are like-minded. Don't, don't overthink it, Morgan. Just chill. It's a fun event. And that can be one perspective. And it's like, if that's what you want to do, then go do it. That's super fun. I am a nerd. So I literally this week, I'm taking a free online college course. Who does that stuff, you know? And I get it that the people that go to these conservative events like us, we're in a unique group. You know what I mean? So this is definitely a more nuanced take because yes, it's super fun to go to these things, all that. But that aside, I think when you are able to bring a critical eye of like, okay, what's good? What's bad? Where's the improvement? Stuff like that. I think what makes them really good is very basic level when they are fun, when they're energetic, when they are inspiring and educational all at the same time. Because the whole concept, like if you're an organization planning an event, if you're putting on an event, then your goal is so that you bring all these people from across the country or the region to come be educated and inspired and get energized. And then you give them all that information and then you send them back out into their communities. And now, since they've gone to all the booths at the event, since they've seen all the speakers, they've learned all this stuff, they have all these pamphlets that they've gotten, they take that information, go back to their communities, and then have a positive impact. Do you see like that basic concept? Very important and very good. And so if you can do that successfully, that's great. And that goes for all ages. Like Turning Point USA, you guys can use code MORGAN and there's going to be discounts to the tickets. YWLS is in June. So use code Morgan for that. And then SAS will be this summer when that's available. You can use code Morgan, but that's for like college students. They have high school student ones. They're having men's summits. There's a young women's leadership summit. The whole point is to get young people because they're not usually exactly excited about conservative ideas. You get young people introduced to them, or you take young conservatives and really vibe them up, educate them and send them out into their college campuses, out into their communities and they bring these resources, education, all this stuff, the network to them. So that's great for young people. And then on top of that, you have groups like CPAC and these other more older crowds. They are specifically intending to go bring some action, whether it's for policy or campaigning with politics, action back to communities, to town GOPs, county GOPs, all that stuff. So there's different benefits that you can have. What you got to do is excite people, energize them, and empower them enough to actually have a positive impact after the event, okay? On top of that, I mean, individually, I don't know about you guys, but I benefit from watching speeches or watching videos on YouTube and stuff, and so it is an individual benefit for people to be able to watch inspiring speeches and learn, and hopefully you grow as a person when you hear these ideas, concepts, lessons, stuff like that. Now, what makes them bad is if you leave the event and you don't have a to-do list, you don't have an action item list of things that you are now set out to do. The event didn't give you a mission to go bring goodness or a certain result to the space around you, whether it's your campus or it's your hometown or your Republican committee, whatever it is. Like if you have left the event and you don't actually know what to do next, then it wasn't exactly a good event in my eyes because there could have been more that was achieved. And again, it doesn't mean that it wasn't a fun event or whatever, but there should be an action item list where people understand what the core point of the event was and then what they're supposed to go do now. Now, the next is, you know, a little more personal. It's it's an issue if what's being said on the stage is not matching the behavior off the stage and in back rooms. And that can be personal behavior. 
like, uh, I know what you did last night and it does not match what you just said on the stage. That's not a good thing either. Um, but it also means Republicans that come on stage and promise a bunch of stuff, but then in the back rooms, they are just another establishment, another rhino, blah, blah, blah. And that really takes discernment in terms of the planning team, the structure of the organization that's putting it on, and making sure that they're actually bringing people that are informative and promise keepers, oath keepers, right, to the public. And that's why I like like Tucker won't have certain people on a show anymore because he knows that they are liars. And that's why I like his show because I know he doesn't have bad guests on anymore. Like a lot of people are still welcomed onto TV stations where they lie and say that they're a part of good change and reform. And then in reality, it's like, wait a second, I know what you actually do in DC and it doesn't fit what you just said on national television. So same thing with the speeches. It's like, I don't want to hear the same old, same old. So the speaker lineup really does matter. And it has to be People that are in that new conservative movement mindset, understanding the importance of culture and education, not dismissing it and saying, oh, we only care about taxes and an econ and stuff like that. And that's kind of my next point is if the event is the old conservative movement style where there's talking points of the previous generations of Republicans that came before us that led to this massive issue in our nation of debt and high taxes and at the absolute demolishing of American culture, then I don't really want to hear them speak. And it makes me concerned about the group that's putting the speakers up there and hosting the event. It's not exactly going to bring any true change to the country or to the movement. So I don't really want the conservative approach of the last handful of decades. I wouldn't be interested in hearing what they were going to say or encourage us to do because it's like, okay, what have you been doing for us for all these decades? It's like when Joe Biden ran for office or Hillary ran for office, when people are like, you've been in office for decades. What have you actually done to change it? Now you're saying you'll be president and you'll change it all of a sudden. Uh -uh. We need to start doing that about conservatives. That's why I love the book Age of Entitlement by Christopher Caldwell. I've talked about this before, but the book basically feels illegal to read because it's that aggressive in a good way. I encourage you to read it. Now, I would say as a close to this, all of the events in the movement that are just really showy and don't give people a renewed sense of purpose in the movement and a to-do list and have positive impact, I think all of those events are really representative of a greater issue that we're facing in our movement. And it's where our movements become an industry, the political industry, the money-making industry of consultants, influencers, pages that are run by interns but make a ton of money, etc. We see virality. We see Videos get millions of views. We see people get lots of followers, lots of meme success, lots of social success, star power. And we assume that it means that we're winning politically. And so the same thing goes, I would say, with events where the back rooms of events are VIP status. And for some reason, I get a VIP card. You know what I mean? It's like, why do I have this? But you go back there and it's people that have a bunch of followers on TikTok and Instagram and all this stuff and they get the food and they get to hang out with the cool people behind the scenes. And you could tell there's just this feeling of they think that they are that good. You know, they think that they are better than the people out there, the, the people in the general admission. And this idea of status, almost like it's a concert with a backstage pass, that is so representative of the issues that we're facing in the movement in general. You know what I mean? And so that's not really what I like about (laughs) the events. And I would take it a step further to say, when we make the events about 
the people in the movement already and not about the people out there, the voters, the people that are running the petitions for the local town and Republican county parties, we have a serious issue because the Democrats are really about being involved at the local level and supporting the ground level volunteers and workers. And then I worry that we're almost becoming elitist in the conservative movement with we all get super dressed up in our, our outfits and we travel from town to town or city to city for these big events. It's the same dang people behind stage every single time. It's the same influencers, the same speakers. We get all dressed up. We give our speeches. And is anybody actually doing anything beyond that? Or is the, quote, work that we're doing just literally attending these events and talking about how we've got to save the country? You know, am I making myself clear on that? So I think... When especially like the citizens out there, the voters, the people that are working a nine to five job and then also volunteering for the Republican Party and petitioning and donating to the GOP and doing all the things that they say to do and they're calling the representative and they're worried about their kids, they're worried about the future of the country. When they see us just dressed up and going from event to event and posting there like and these dresses that cost hundreds of dollars and all this stuff in our fancy suits, like we look so disconnected from the average Republican voter out there. And we are so disconnected and tuned out of the people that believe in our movement and the people that want the conservatives to succeed that are living the hardships of the problems of our country every single day. So this disconnect between political industry elites and influencers versus actual working conservatives in the field and the voters is really, really troubling. And I'm worried it's going to cause some problems down the road because it's only reaching a point. And if you haven't noticed this, maybe you could keep an eye out for it. But like the replies of the posts where people say, I told you it was only going to get worse. Those replies used to be kind of more supportive of like, I know it's crazy. Like, what do you think is going to happen next? Blah, blah, blah. Like, tell me because they respected their opinion. Now the replies to those kind of posts, it's only going to get worse or I told you so. Or like, just wait, it's going to get worse in two months. And then they could say, I told you so. I told you it was going to get worse. Now the replies are more so like, thanks, jerk. What's going to happen next? Like, people are over it. People are over the negative pity party conservative movement. Like, this sucks. We're over it, okay? Because thanks, we all know it sucks. We all pay the grocery bill. We are all living in this economy and seeing the tyranny and seeing the authoritarianism. Thank you. We see it. We don't need you to tweet about it. How about you give us a solution? You know what I mean? I see the replies and I'm like, wow, the tide has shifted. The responses are interesting. And bottom line is because I've been involved, you know, even in the local GOP, I was a committee person and I've seen those like big national events. I've seen all sides of it. I have so much more praise for the people who show up and fight at the school board level, who advocate for certain policy changes at the local or state level who try their darndest to actually infiltrate the system. And by that, I mean literally becoming a committee person or petitioner for a GOP town committee and then maybe trying to get their town to take over the county Republican Party and then have an impact in the state GOP, which is a mess. Those are always super oddly corrupt for the most part. And then maybe having an impact or a voice on the national level. But just the the boot at the national level of the GOP just stomps those people out. And that's why nothing ever really changes. I have so much respect for the people that are actually trying so hard to infiltrate that system that badness and for the better 
change the corrupt GOP structure or the policies out there that are hurting us or just trying to reach others in true communication. So much respect for them. I hope I didn't sound like I was ranting, but I think that was an important thing to address. Now, last question. I, I've gotten this a few times, actually. So one of the questions along the lines of generational curses was, do you believe in generational curses and can you break generational curses? And I would say, yes, I believe in generational curses because of that classic saying, you really can only be what you can see. And so if you don't have an understanding of other potentials, other opportunities, other life paths than that, then your worldview is very small and you're probably going to follow the patterns because that's just familiar to you. That's what you know. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not your fault in that situation. And then same thing with that. It's like what we're trying to do when we talk about homeschooling kids on a macro level, right? On a personal level, it's like if you've only seen XYZ in your family and you haven't seen other families maybe and you haven't seen the world outside of this, then you're going to follow a certain path. But on a macro level, it's like, okay, for generations, public school has been the normal option. Homeschoolers are weird. You're weird if you want to only eat organic, all this stuff. Like there's all these stigmas. And so it's more about how do you break that stigma and how do you enter into a zone where not a lot of people have? And the people saying, I'm going to homeschool my kids and have a big family and settle down earlier than society tells me is normal, that is like uncharted territory for modern America. So in that way, it's like it's kind of hard to form it all. And that's why you see these communities online growing because you can't be what you can't see. You can't, you can't do it alone. And you can't just come up with it in your mind. It really helps to have mentorship and guidance and a path to follow. So I think that's why we see so many large online homeschool communities and so many parents and moms talking about it and stuff. But to this general topic, the idea of breaking a curse like this or a pattern really comes down to maturity. And I I love that concept so much, the idea of maturing. I really enjoy it a lot. I love aging. I love that whole process. And I really love evaluating myself. And in the same book that I read earlier, You Learn by Living by Eleanor Roosevelt, one of the chapters is on maturity. And she says maturity, one of the aspects of it, is understanding yourself. So your strengths, your weaknesses, why you do the things you do, why you used to do the things you do. And then after looking at yourself, then being able to understand those around you. So their strengths, their weaknesses, why they do the things that they do. And with that, you're kind of able to see like, listen, they aren't superheroes. Your mom and dad, not superheroes. Your mom, say you're trying to break that generational curse of single motherhood. You look at your poor mom and maybe she got pregnant as a teenager and you say, what were the factors that led to her leading into that? Oh, wait, she's not a superhero. She's a human that deserves grace. And so you can kind of apply the different concepts to it. And that's really what Eleanor Roosevelt is talking about of you realize that you can't hold other people to this insanely high standard. You have to look at them as a fallible human. And they deserve your love and respect and grace, even if they've also made mistakes. And that can be kind of hard with parents. So she talks about the whole thing. It's a really good book. But then she kind of goes down like the steps of maturity. And she was talking about like when you when you can give grace to those around you for what you see as their failings and when you can accept it and not be resentful because maybe their their failings hurt you then you have matured quite a lot, okay? And that goes into breaking that generational curse. You're never going to improve if you still hold resentment and hurt over the, the impacts that might have been had on you because of what somebody else did. On top of that, 
When you can see other people's perspectives and when you can imagine the struggles of others and realize that other people are flawed, then you are maturing. And when you can see changes that are capable of being made and either you realize that you yourself can fix them or you can see that the flaws that you have aren't necessarily fixable because it's just how you are and you need help, you need assistance, then you are also maturing. And so I'm glad that I read this maturing chapter, right, as I got this generational curses question, because it really does have to do with how do you actually have positive change? The whole concept of generational curses are really a mixture of all of these problems, that other people are flawed, that we are flawed, that we have to be able to look at ourselves with our strengths and weaknesses, others with their strengths and weaknesses. And then after doing that, look at, okay, so then what needs to be done? What needs to be done? And that really means looking at it and saying, hey, XYZ happened before me and I would like it to stop. So that means in order for it to stop, I have to take the following steps to stop this cycle from happening again. And you have to be able to do that without a resentful heart and judging mind. You need to be able to ask, what do I need to do? Why did these things occur for other people that came before me? And how am I going to prevent that when I build on to my family or to my community. And I think that that was a really good answer just from Eleanor Roosevelt. That was not my answer. That was hers. And it has to do with the curses. So I hope that that helps you guys. Again, micro or macro, personal or societal level, we can stop the really hurtful things that have been normalized by society if we just take a little bit more intention when we're going about evaluating ourselves and others. That being said, thank you guys for tuning in. I appreciate it. I'm excited to say that I'm going to be taking a break from podcasting and stuff. And so we have, let's see, we have pretty much about a week left of podcasts. And then I'm going to kind of pause for the cause. I'm excited for this. So it's not a sad pause. It's a happy pause. Uh, It's a happy break. And it'll begin after Friday's episode. So thank you guys for tuning in for all these episodes over the last who knows how long, like the last year at least. I've really enjoyed doing this and um, I'm just excited for what's to come. So thank you and I'll see you next time.